Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Look, Matt, your wonkishness is not going to defeat the dark psychic energy. (laughs) I agree with that. (laughs) Talking about dark psychic energy also isn't going to defeat the dark psychic energy. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, joined today by Ezra Klein to do another uh, review of the grueling Democratic Party debate schedule. I think we both watched, what was it, like 17 hours of debates over the past two days? Many hours of debates. A lot. And we were just chatting before this, and it was interesting because there there was a lot of debate, there was a lot of time, and there was almost weirdly little discussion of the fact that Donald Trump is the president of the United States, that he has policy ideas, um, that he is doing things. Uh, If 2018, you heard a lot about how like Trump's tax bill was bad and how trying to repeal the Affordable Care Act was bad and candidates were going to hold him accountable, push back. And in 2020, we in this debate, like we didn't we didn't really hear about that. Yeah, I think it's the strangest thing about the debate so far, if you were watching these debates, what you might think is that America is a one-party state with authoritarian rule, such that whoever wins the Democratic nomination will be able to implement an agenda no matter how ambitious by fiat. And so it's really important, the question of whether or not you're dealing with like Michael Bennett's form of liberalism or Joe Biden's form of liberalism or Elizabeth Warren's form of liberalism or Bernie Sanders' form of democratic socialism. And That would be really interesting if that was the choice. But what's actually happening is there's going to be a choice between a Democrat and Donald Trump. And what is absolutely not happening on that stage is any discussion of Donald Trump's policies. So you're not hearing about his health care policies. You're not hearing very much at all about his tax cuts. It's come up glancingly at best. You've heard a little bit about his immigration policy, but but not in any kind of big picture way. You've not heard about the way he runs the country. You've not heard about regulation. You've not heard about white collar enforcement to the extent that on the first night of the second debates, you didn't even hear about Mueller and impeachment, even though that Mueller uh, had just testified about a week ago. And 
that to me has been really striking. Some of it is because the moderators are completely driving this and they they kind of keep like lobbing grenades into the divisions within the Democratic Party. And the 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 various Democrats are all going at that. And also the way the debate is set up, there's a huge incentive to attack each other because then you get more time. So if you like if you pivot away and attack Donald Trump, the dynamic is not then that the moderator gives Donald Trump 30 seconds to respond and then you get 30 seconds to respond to Donald Trump. The The dynamic is you just lose your chance to talk after that. Right. But still, they've just like completely stopped talking about the president of the United States who they're putatively trying to replace. Well, and I would say, especially from Joe Biden, right? If you didn't watch the debates, right, the, the way the rules were structured, basically, if you could get called on and then could attack someone and then that person would attack you back, like you would get more screen time. So especially for the uh, candidates like like the lesser known people, there was a strong incentive to just like come out swinging. Right. But Joe Biden uh, got a lot of speaking time because he's like a, a central figure in the debate. And he did talk about Donald Trump. But I thought it was striking that he talked about Donald Trump in almost like a a metaphorical way. He talked about Trump ripping the fabric of the nation apart. It was very reminiscent of both 2016 and 2018. The more moderate wing of the Democratic Party was in the the driver's seat. But Biden's message about Trump came much closer to the 2016 message about the sort of horrificness of Trump than to the 2018 message, which was about the kind of specific, banal criticisms of Trump and his administration. And one result of that is that I think that if you are somebody who is more left-wing than Joe Biden is, and you listen to Joe Biden talk about how he wants to beat Donald Trump and why he wants to beat Donald Trump, it sounds from a progressive perspective like really uninteresting. Because Biden didn't talk about the stuff that Joe Biden as president would do that progressives would be excited about, right? Like if if any of these Democrats, the most moderate one, you know, Steve Bullock, whoever is president, then you're going to fill judicial seats with Democratic judges rather than Republican judges. You're going to have a shot to overturn Citizens United, you know, whatever else is, is there in that progressive agenda. You are going to have uh, regulators who try to support labor unions. You're going to have an environmental protection agency that tries to stop pollution rather than letting it get worse. You're going to have bank regulators who, you know, this, that, and the other thing, right? Like there's a whole laundry list of like banal policymaking that Trump is doing that a Democrat will in sort of banal ways replace. And that is like the reason why you would expect progressive people to really want a Democrat to win the election, even if they don't share their like outer universe kind of aspirations. And nobody was talking about that. And it wasn't, I think, like a bad debate for Biden exactly. Uh, He got attacked by a lot of people and sort of held his own. But like, it was weird to me. It wasn't what I would have done. I think one way to think about it is that a debate is going to have a debate at it. It is not going to be a bunch of time in which people just talk about what they want to do in a friendly manner. So there's going to be some divisions that dominate. And you might have expected the division that would dominate is with Donald Trump and a lot of people making the case that they are the best position to fight Donald Trump. And instead, the division that is dominating is the, I don't actually want to call it the moderate versus liberal wing of the party, because almost nobody at this point is running as what we would think of as a moderate. It's like a liberal versus left wing of the Democratic Party. And and, and so that's a, that's a pretty big change from, I think, what Democrats would actually be smart to do. The other thing that I think is relevant in there 
is that they are not prosecuting a case against Donald Trump in part by choice. Something that you heard as a very popular piece of rhetoric is Donald Trump is symptom, not cause. Elizabeth Warren says this, a number of the other candidates say it. It's something that a lot of people believe. Um, but the idea, I think Cory Booker said, like, you know, beating Donald Trump is, is sort of like the is a low bar. Donald Trump, if Donald Trump is symptom, not cause, then you have to like talk about the big cause. And I don't know that that is actually a smart or even correct, really, attitude for Democrats to take. I mean, of course, everybody in politics is symptom, not cause. Politics is bigger than any one person. But in point of fact, they will be running against Donald Trump, not just sim- not, not, not just causes behind him. And right now, um, Donald Trump is the cause of a lot of things happening in American policy, both domestic and foreign. And <laughs> pointing that out and making a coherent case against it, I, I think, is, it is important work for the Democrats to do in this election. Right now, they're just assuming everybody agrees with them that he is bad. And so the question of b- facing the, the country, at least the Democratic Party, is which of them is goodest. Right. And well, and in particular, I mean, this is why I feel like the lack of specificity of the criticism of Trump is is odd because like it right. is true. Like to me, it is just obvious that Donald Trump is loathsome. Right. And that is how I think most Democrats feel about it. You could just like gesture broadly at like his conduct on any given afternoon and be like, this guy is trash. Right. But evidently, not everybody feels that way because he is president. Right. And so then you always have to ask in politics. Right. It's like, who is this argument for? And there's nothing wrong with the argument that Donald Trump is a trash human being who's obviously unfit for office. But you also want to look at, OK, within the universe of people who who look at Trump, they look at his antics, they look at the tweets and they're like, you know what? This is fine. Do you want to concede to all of those people that like actually Trump is good? Or do you want to make the case that like the fact that after 35 years of consistently cleaner air, it's getting dirtier and people are going to get asthma and die? It's like bad, right? That that's like something you probably haven't heard about. The other thing that struck me in this debate is that there were like two parallel debates happening, one in which low-ranking moderates, right, like uh, Steve Bullock and Amy Klobuchar and John Delaney would criticize Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. And then I think like Bernie and Warren kind of like beat them down. And then you had a debate in which sort of better known, more liberal people like Kamala Harris and Cory Booker attacked Joe Biden, and then Biden kind of like beat them off. And so those are like debates across. I wouldn't really say beat Booker off, but fair enough. Okay. Uh, he, he stood he, sorry, up, I He think. definitely survived the fight. I just, I, I wouldn't say it was like the, the devastation that Elizabeth Warren laid out on John Delaney. Sure, sure. But they, they, they were having arguments about ideology, right? Yes. And what you didn't have was arguments about um, standard bearers, right? Where like, it seems to me that if you accept all of the premises of Joe Biden's campaign, you might very reasonably think that Steve Bullock would be a better person to say all of that stuff. Like, He's younger. He doesn't have as long of a track record to mine. He's from Montana and was very popular there. Um, You know, stuff like that. Or you might think Amy Klobuchar, whose like stats are really good. Um, She's a woman and people could get excited about that, that like that might be better. And you didn't have those kind of internal arguments. And then most famously, you didn't have Bernie and Warren argue either about like who should represent their shared viewpoint. And in some ways, like those arguments are more interesting because it's like 
you know, you and I or or Bernie Sanders and John Delaney, any two people could just kind of like argue for 10 minutes, be like, should Democrats be leftists or should they be moderately liberal? And you're like not going to resolve that question. Whereas I think some of these other questions, like who would be the best champion for an argument that we want continuity with Barack Obama, like actually could have an answer if you like talked it out. And I'm a little skeptical. I'm very skeptical, I think, that Joe Biden actually is the right answer to that. It seems like a kind of dumb coordination problem is like holding mainstream Democrats back. I think this is a really sharp insight. Um, The other person I would put into into this frame is Pete Buttigieg. Yes. I think that if you listen to the things Joe Biden is saying, He's doing a very bad job of saying the things Pete Buttigieg is saying. Uh-huh. And if you listen to what Pete Buttigieg is saying, he's doing a very good job of saying what Joe Biden is saying. But the problem is he's not the former vice president of the United States. And instead, he's the mayor of South Bend, Indiana. Right. And so there's this kind of funny thing happening where there is a good argument to be made from the Joe Biden wing of the Democratic Party. But Joe Biden, honestly, is not that good at making it at, right now or at this point. A bunch of the other candidates on stage, when they talk, you can you can if you're watching journalist Twitter, you can like see a filter get applied and it's like the yada, yada, yada filter. Mm -hmm. Right. It's like, oh, we've cut to Steve Bullock or we've cut to John Delaney and like, who cares? Right. It's interesting to see whether or not Elizabeth Warren like guts him like a fish, but they're not they're not being listened to in an open way. And I think some of them are making good points. I thought Michael Bennett, for instance, had some actually quite good answers on the merits uh, last night. He had some good answers on education and school segregation. He had he was one of the only people who spoke about the, the, the sort of Trump era economy, I think, in a convincing way. But he's not a candidate that people consider all that credible for, for the presidency. And so there's just this generalized problem where the thing seems to have split to me in a weird way where the way the debates worked, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren did an excellent job making an argument for very unpopular policies. That is not to say they don't also have popular policies, but the moderators focus them on unpopular policies. And they did a bang up job arguing for unpopular policies, like giving health care to undocumented immigrants or abolishing private insurance. And then Joe Biden did a very mediocre job arguing for popular policies. And that is a that is not a great matchup for the Democratic Party to be in right now. You would you would ideally like a sort of then like in the middle of the Venn diagram for somebody to be doing a very good job at making the argument for very popular policies like that is if you wanted to have the best chance of winning the election, that is probably how you would try to do it. But 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 that is not what we're seeing. Well, and it's it's interesting to me, you know, given how much emphasis there has been on electability. I mean, again, like bracketing, because I think there's like the Bernie Warren argument that like Democrats on the merits. And I mean, they have their kind of electability theory of this, but like they say, like on the merits, Democrats should put forward a very different policy agenda from, you know, continuity with Obama, blah, blah, blah. And so that's like interesting. That's an interesting argument to have. Then there's like a lot of people up there who are not making that argument, but that we are not thinking in a sober-minded sense. Like if you went into the smoke-filled rooms and you were like, okay, we are going to select an electability option, then of the people on that field, there's like 20, 22 of them. I mean, I think three really stand out as a four as, as plausible, right? So one is Klobuchar, who has just put up great numbers in a slightly blue-leaning state of Minnesota that has a lot in common demographically with the key swing states. The other is Bullock, right? Who 
has won statewide three times in a very, very red state, um, has committed some serious ideological heresies on coal, but they're pretty much limited to the state-specific question of coal in Montana. So you might think, you know, he's acceptable. We should do this to win. And then the others, we have two different guys from Colorado, which is like also a um, bluish-leaning swing state. They've done well. I mean, I think Bennett was um, impressive in his answers and Hickenlooper was sort of not. So it's like maybe you put Bennett up there in that ring. And like, you can say, yes, like all three of those people have like obvious problems with their primary campaign. Like they don't have a huge base of enthusiasts because default normie Democrats are all going to Joe Biden. But like what, like what sense does that make? Like the the reason Biden is doing so well is that he was vice president, right? Like there's no, there's nothing about the performance he's put in relative to the other more moderate options that is like so incredible. Um, like it's fine, but sometimes seems a little shaky. It's just that like he has this uh, coordination problem. It's a coordination problem for Democrats, right? It's like there's no way to get the public to be like, okay, all the normie Democrats, like you're going to switch over and become Bennett fans now. And I think that it means that those other people, like those three people I named specifically, like they need to attack Biden, I think, rather than attacking Bernie, because the proximate problem that they're having isn't that like leftists want a leftist nominee. It's that people who aren't leftists aren't picking their best choice. I think there's a lot to that. And and, and to pivot away from the strategy here for a minute, two two things strike me. One is that If you look back to 2016, which is the last time we saw somebody making roughly Biden's arguments, arguing with someone making roughly Bernie Sanders arguments, Hillary Clinton was just much stronger on the debate stage than Joe Biden is. I mean, not even close. Uh, I actually think Hillary Clinton would be be performing extremely well on this debate stage, too. I think that, that she is sort of underrated after losing, although not losing the popular vote in 2016, although people do not like it when you praise Hillary Clinton now. But that's just one thing. I'm just really struck by the poverty of the sort of argumentation being done here. The other thing is that the debate stage policy argument is being moderator-led in a way that I don't feel like I remember it being quite this way before. And and this was true both in in, in the CNN debate and in the um, uh, NBC debate. The moderators are exclusively focusing on points of division in the Democratic Party. And the Democrats uh, have, as far as I can tell, no ability to message against that. You would see Cory Booker a couple times saying, hey, you're trying to get us to fight with each other. And they'd be like, but now I'm going to fight with each other. I suspect it's because the way the rules have functioned here, there is such a payoff to getting into a fight with another Democrat. So you've really created a structural situation where you need to be be fighting with, um, with the other Democrats. But it also just means that a lot of policy arguments that should be had or should be made are not being made. So to give one example, one of the really interesting policy developments in this democratic field is a slew of really, really big earned income tax credit or related cash transfer proposals. So you have one from Michael Bennett, which would basically eliminate extreme child poverty, have normal child poverty. You have one from Kamala Harris in the LIFT Act. You have a universal baby bonds proposal, which I I like to think of as sort of a universal basic wealth proposal from Cory Booker. You, of course, have the UBI proposal for Andrew Yang. I'm almost certainly forgetting some other UBI, uh, I'm sorry, some other EITC proposals in the field. And they're getting no attention. And yet, 
to have a discussion, like a really, really sharp and obvious difference between the Democratic Party and the Republican Party right now is Donald Trump and the Republican Party spent literally trillions of dollars in a tax cut geared towards large corporations and the top 1% that appears to have done almost nothing for the economy if you look at the latest GDP numbers, whereas the Democrats want to take some of that money, at least I think that's how they want to fund some of these, and move it into what is functionally a very large working class um, refundable tax credit. And so like, that's like an interesting difference between the parties. And it's a theory about the economy, that the economy is growing okay, but the gains of it are not being well shared. And so like, that's why it doesn't feel better than it does to people. But it's not getting a lot of attention, again, because it is not an incredibly unpopular policy some Democrats hold and the other Democrats will disagree with. And at the same time, the Democrats are not showing any ability to move the discussion to what they actually want to or in some abstract way should be talking about. I'm a little confused by their lack of nimbleness about this. I mean, I don't have as much uh, experience uh, with with broadcast media as you do, um, but I have done some media training and it's like the first thing they say is that you need to come into the interview knowing what you want to say, and then you need to answer the questions that you wish you were asked, right? And like not let yourself get led around. And like, I'm sure these are like high level professional politicians, but except for Cory Booker, none of them really seem, I I should give Bernie Sanders a a little credit on this too. I I think he also did it to an extent, but they, they did not really have mastered the art of like, you know, Don, I think the real issue here is, and then like, you just talk, and like say what you want to say, right? Like if you get a question, you should have healthcare is an important issue. So anybody running for president should have a top line message on healthcare policy that they want to deliver. And if you get asked a question that's like anywhere in the vague vicinity of healthcare, you should give your good healthcare speech, not get into some like crazy call and response about uh, like a hostile framing of, of your least popular thing. Now, I don't want to just do like tactical criticism on this, but It struck me that, like, if you were watching this as a regular person who was not, like, super attuned to this debate, but who has some concern about their health care personally, almost nobody was, like, really trying to explain, like, what the point of their plan was. Yeah, I completely agree. The one person I want to give some credit to here, I think Buttigieg often did try to do this. I think he is more flexible than almost anyone on the stage at taking a question and saying what he wants to say about it. That is not to say he's a better communicator, I think, actually than Warren or Sanders. They just, they actually want the fights the moderators are offering them. Sure. Like the moderators are rolling these like like grenades in and, and, and Warren and Sanders are like thrilled. They like grab the grenade and throw it over at Delaney. Right. And Buttigieg is grabbing it and trying to put the pin back in. And it's not super working. It makes him feel a little irrelevant. We were having this debate in Slack, um, and I was saying in, in, to, to our team that I thought Buttigieg's answers on the merits um, that, that first night were extremely good. Um, and somebody replied to me like, yeah, but he seems very irrelevant. I was like, that is also true. <laughs> and so there's this weird thing where the, the the format is not rewarding that. But it's not to say nobody is trying. And I thought that if you were if you were just trying to listen to the answers that were self-contained and made sense in their own terms, his typically did. Okay, let's take a break, and then we're going to come back and try to talk about the the actual policy. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. 
Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Support for The Weeds comes from Burrow. Okay, are you ready for the understatement of the century? Buying furniture can be frustrating. You end up visiting a bunch of stores searching aimlessly for the right pieces to match your home, then spend hours trying to get those pieces together or together again if you got it wrong the first time. And that's even if you were able to get it through the door. Burrow is a furniture company that wants to make the whole thing easier. Burrow's new Dune line features a contemporary yet timeless look inspired by the craftsmanship of classic mid-century construction. If you're looking to bring a sense of luxury, comfort, and durability to your outdoor spaces, you might want to consider Burrow. Like all of Burrow's pieces, they offer easy assembly and disassembly so you can move or store them away as needed. Not only that, they ship straight to your door for free. Listeners of The Weeds can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com weeds. That's Burrow. B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash weeds for 15% off. Burrow.com slash weeds. Okay, I want to I want to talk a little more policy here because I, I feel like specifically on healthcare that a lot of the candidates were sort of missing the a little bit missing the point of like the logic of their own positions, right? Which is that Bernie Sanders has put on the table this like totally sweeping transformation of health policy. And it's something that under certain framings, Medicare for all polls very well, uh, but under a lot of other framings, it polls poorly. So then a number of candidates have concern about this. But a lot of them, I mean, Harris, number one, but but a number of others seem to me to be responding to their worries about this with like a really, really literal read of like what attacks are persuasive and how can I like twist a plan to not respond to those attacks. But as you wrote, Ezra, right, the basic political challenge for Medicare for all is simply that most people say that they are satisfied with their existing insurance coverage. And so the political problem that that creates is not like a problem with a specific provision of Medicare for all. It's a problem for the premise that the American public wants sweeping systematic transformation of the healthcare system. And all of these plans, Harris's plan, Buttigieg's plan, Beto's plan, um, they all are sweeping transformations of the healthcare system. Right. Which like maybe you want to do because like, fuck it, it's what you want to do. But what that cautionary note from the poll is saying is that like most people don't want that, even though Democratic Party healthcare wonks, including both the left wing and the moderate ones, think they should want sweeping transformation like most people don't. And so if you if you want to be politically cautious, it seems to me you should do things right. Like there's this prescription drug price controls the Democrats have been talking about for generations. There's the surprise medical billing. Like there's a million like little things you could say you want to try to do. But 
it's like we're well, now. Well, Amy Klobuchar plan to be fair, and she did make that argument. Yeah, I like it's Amy just nobody, Klobuchar. Nobody, nobody, nobody thrills to it. <laughs> I want to make one point on this because I do think it's interesting. But I want to cut. I want to cut that a little bit of a different way. Okay. I would say that there are kind of three ways to look at this. Um, the, the the plans that are on the stage. So one, there are the plans that transform the system. That, that do two things, right? They transform the system in a way that makes everybody move over from their current insurance. And they abolish private insurance. So that's Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren and, I guess, Bill de Blasio. Um, then Kamala Harris had endorsed that plan, but she got cold feet in a weird way. And then she created a plan, which in terms of its end point, I actually think makes a lot of sense. But in terms of how it gets there is sort of a disaster. Um, but she created a plan that also makes everybody move off of their current insurance, but it doesn't abolish private insurance. So it's a plan with the same amount of disruption, but it retains a space for private insurance. And then there are a bunch of other plans that do not take away what people currently have, but they create space for people to move over to something new. Maybe for some people, move what they have, right? People in the current Obamacare individual market, things like that. But in general, it's going to allow both individuals and employers to buy into some kind of Medicare public option, but it doesn't force them to do so. And that's really what a Joe Biden plan does, a Michael Bennett plan does, a bunch of others. Yeah, but in the real world, don't don't you think that those optionality plans are going to be more like more disruptive than that high level description makes them sound? It it depends on the um it, it depends on the plan. Like for instance, Michael Bennett's, if I remember reading it correctly, I think really would be like quite non-disruptive. I think it's much smaller than some of the other ones we're talking about. Joe Biden's, which you were a, a great explainer on, um, could be a bit more disruptive, except that I think that depends, and 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 we get into a, a debate here about switching costs of how disruptive it would feel for someone for their employer to move over from, say, Cigna to, to Medicare X or Extra or whatever you end up calling it in one of these plans. Employers do, as as folks on the left point out, um, and, and healthcare people have been talking about forever, move plans quite a bit, and individuals move plans quite a bit. Um, and so people don't tend to mind as much as some think, like the moving of a plan, if they have control of it, right? If they think they're now going to get something better, like that's choice in the market and people like having choice in the market. What they don't like is losing something they have. It's taken from them. They lost their job. It changed. The premium on it went up 40%. And, and so I don't see a lot of evidence that some of these plans will do that, but they could be more disruptive. And they certainly could be more disruptive, by the way, on the provider side, if these things got big and they're using Medicare rates. And now your doctor is telling you that he's going to have to stop taking as many patients or whatever it might be. Well, that, that's so what I mean, though, right? Like, if, you, if you're just trying to think in the real world, I want to improve health care, but I'm worried about people's gut level risk aversion, then even Joe Biden's plan, right, which like the, the anti-Medicare for all group like blasted, right? Like, you're going to put this in Congress. There's going to be ads that are like, Joe Biden's going to ruin your health care. And like, your doctor's going to say, Joe Biden's ruining your health care. So it's like, like I don't know, man. Like, why do this? I think there's a good question of, do you want to put your eggs in the health care basket, given the number of things you, you you have to do? Like, I will just say, I think that Jay Inslee up there, he is, of all the candidates, the one who suffers from the biggest and worst gap between his charisma as a politician and like the strength of the rationale of his candidacy. I think like climate first from somebody who has been a successful governor of a state who has been working on climate forever and has learned important lessons about how to do it, like is like a really good um, 
theory for like what you would want right now. So I want to note that uh, that I take your point here seriously of, of why do healthcare at all first. But in, in a world where you are doing healthcare, I am not a believer in this argument that because the right and some of the industry will attack whatever you do, it doesn't matter what you do because like it's a binary switch you're flipping. Um, we have seen. Yeah, no, a lot I'm of arguing healthcare. to do nothing. Total cowardice. Right. Yeah. I think you're making a strong argument for the do nothing. <laughs> but I do just want to note this point. Yes. Like, um, there, there is this idea that it's like a binary switch you flip and it's like the, 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 the everything gets attacked as socialist. So may as well just be a socialist or do nothing. We have seen a huge number of health reforms tried in this country at both the state and national levels. Um, in Vermont, they tried a single payer plan. It failed. In Colorado, they tried a single payer plan. It failed. In Massachusetts, they did one of these hybrid plans. It succeeded. In 94, the Clintons had a private plan that was full disruption. It would change everything everybody had. It failed. Obamacare, which was a hybrid plan that did not disrupt as much, passed. I think that there's a real difference in terms of what you were able to sell, in part because it's what you're able to sell to people of your own party, right? The key votes in your own party, like what they think will happen after the thing is passed, um, that makes plans with somewhat lower levels of disruption more plausible within the American political system. Those are, by the way, not my favorite plans. I'm not arguing for my own ideological interest here, but I, I don't think everything is the same. Now, whether or not healthcare is like the thing you should be putting all your everything into, I think I'm actually, as much as I love healthcare policy, I think I'm closer to your position on this. I would, I would much prefer to see somebody focusing on climate. And by the way, in a way that only Pete Buttigieg and Jay Inslee talked about on the stage, I think the first thing you should do, no matter what your policy priority is, is like democracy and policy process reform, getting rid of the filibuster, making D.C. a state, dealing with voting rights issues, um, dealing with the Electoral College. And there's like all these candidates having these like minor differences between policies that cannot pass under any current idea of the system, I think need to be thinking more seriously about that. I mean, yes, I, I don't know what, to the extent that they were talking about these healthcare plans, it's really challenging. Like so an idea we we talked about at Vox across the last election, like all the time is like the stakes, right? Like you want to understand that like politics is not just human drama, but there is actually something at stake here. And when I hear the candidates talking about their like angels on the pin of a needle healthcare plans, I would really struggle to convey to somebody like what is actually at stake in this. I mean, I could explain to you what these plans do and what the implications are, but the question of who wins the nomination is like not going to alter the question of which of these plans happens, even though like there is a lot of differences between the candidates. I think that Elizabeth Warren in particular and, and Bernie Sanders uh, to a lesser extent have a very real um, critique that I basically agree with of the Obama administration and sort of Democratic Party establishment, which is that they did not staff their administrations in a thorough top to bottom way with progressive movement people, right, who were dedicating their lives to the cause of progressive politics and who, if they rotated out of government, would then go work for a Senate challenger or a governor somewhere or a nonprofit organization or not none of them, right? Like plenty of Obama people fit that 
mold where like Jean Lambrou worked in the White House on healthcare policy and now she works for the new governor of Maine on like setting up their Medicaid thing. But that a lot of people who Democrats bring into government rotate out to K Street, to industry groups, to white shoe law firms where they work for corporate clients. The Silicon Valley. Silicon Valley. Um, That was a popular one for the Obama people. Right. Exactly. And that like that is going to be the difference that like a Warren administration will be or Sanders administration will be progressive in the way that a Republican administration is conservative. It's going to be full of ideologues, right? But she didn't say that. She used to do these speeches about personnel as policy, blah, blah, blah. But but she didn't say that. And Sanders didn't say that. So instead, they express the disagreement that they have with the other Democrats in terms of their willingness to sign on to like kind of bonkers, unpopular ideas that have no chance of happening, right? Like, on the one hand, I feel like it's crazy to endorse the idea of giving free health care to undocumented immigrants because it's so unpopular. At the same time, if you're sincerely worried that President Bernie Sanders is going to give health care to undocumented immigrants, like, I promise you that law is not going to pass. (laughs) <laughs> right? Like, yeah, that's a fair you know point. I mean? like, like, that is not a good thing to worry. Like, you might worry that President Sanders will yell too much because, like, he is a yelly guy. But, like, there is definitely not going to be a program that gives zero deductible, zero copayment health insurance to undocumented immigrants. Like, there's no way. But so, like, wh- why are they expressing their progressive values by saying stuff like that rather than by saying, like, like real things? Like, we will not have people who come from Wall Street run the Treasury Department. Let me make a specific criticism here of both Warren and Sanders um, separately. I think one version of Bernie Sanders that I heard argued for a couple of years ago and I think made some sense is that he is a like a democratic socialist who cares deeply about populism and cares deeply about uh, changing living conditions for the working class. And unlike a lot of Democrats, he does not get distracted by a lot of these identity politics issues, you know, like like I did a interview with Bernie Sanders years ago um, during t- 2016. And I asked him because I often ask politicians this question just because I'm interested in the answer. Like, what do you think of open borders? And he immediately was like, that's a Koch brothers plot. Mm-hmm. And like that's been both on the right and the left. Like people will like screenshot that for various reasons and be like, haha, Bernie Sanders is awesome. See, he doesn't you know, he's not not going to go on the on the super woke left. And then here he is being like, yes, healthcare for undocumented immigrants um, or decriminalizing unauthorized border crossing. And so there's like one version of Bernie Sanders I could have imagined that, you know, yes, he wants to get rid of all private insurance and, you know, break up Amazon and so on. But he's not going to take the step into these other issues that, uh, that, that, that a lot of his own base, right, the kind of putative, like, blue-collar union member in Pennsylvania don't like, right? Like, they want somebody who's going to fight for them. And when you say you're going to give health care to undocumented immigrants, they hear that more loudly than you're going to give health care to them, right? Like, this is just something that, like, has happened in politics forever. But he's really, he's really moved left. I mean, I think this is a point you were actually making to me, Matt. Like, Bernie Sanders has moved very far to the left. And in a different way, so has Elizabeth Warren, who sort of separately had, like, if you had talked about, like, the Bernie Sanders-Elizabeth Warren difference a year ago or eight months ago, the idea was, like, Warren is a market person. Like, she believes in capitalism so much that she's going to, like, completely refashion it in order to fix it. Because, like, she wants capitalism to work. She doesn't, like, dislike capitalism. She is one of the true few believers in it. 
And she has this kind of folksy ability to relate. She's, I think, by far the best policy communicator in American politics right now. She has all of these different plans, and it shows her her level of hyper-competence. But I think in an effort to um, make sure there's no room to her left for Bernie and a belief that like she can actually beat Bernie and then absorb his coalition, she has endorsed everything he's endorsed. So she like the one plan she has not made for herself is a health care plan, which is wild. Like she has a plan on everything except health care, where she's endorsed his plan, which I don't think is really what she would like for a while. She was very big on not being pinned down on Medicare for all. She was a many paths person. And then like clearly a strategic decision was made. And all of a sudden it wasn't many paths. Like this is an actual change in her position. Her position used to be there are a lot of different ways you could go that would be better than what we have, which like is actually my position. And now she is a like a Medicare for all only person. And like that is a that is a collapsing down of her position to a single point. And I think both of them have decided to be like not just left, but like left on everything in all ways simultaneously, as opposed to like taking a stand for a certain kind of left populism that allows you then some space to say no to other things that other parts of the left want you to do. And that in the long run, like it's a real mistake. I genuinely was wa- I was watching them and then like talking to some older Democrats I know. And they like they're they're very talented communicators up there on the stage, but they're endorsing things that are very unpopular. And the implicit theory of the electorate they both seem to have, which is that it just as long as you're saying what you believe and being strong in it and having big ideas to draw a contrast, that it just doesn't matter. Like that you can just endorse anything. It's a real that that's a real bet to make in a country where the geographic deck is so stacked against you that Donald Trump could win five million more votes, according to The New York Times. I'm sorry, that you could win five million more votes than Donald Trump and still lose the Electoral College, according to Nate Cohen at The New York Times. So I don't know that like they both seem to me to, to have a real theory of the electorate before they've a little bit abandoned um, in this primary. With Sanders, I think the clearest example of this is guns, right? Where Sanders yeah. used to be a, I think some of his critics from the Hillary camp exaggerated exactly how moderate he was on guns, but he, he had a moderate view on guns that befit both the fact that Vermont was a rural state. Uh, Howard Dean also got hit on this because uh, also from Vermont, but also um, reflected his class first worldview about politics, right? Because it's just true that like if you think the fundamental question in American politics is the control of the political system by a wealthy corporate elite and that the cure to the disease is to build a broad working class coalition to seize political power from the corporate elite, then getting into fights with people about their hobbies is like very counterproductive, right? Like it like it follows from that diagnosis that like you cannot be out there like talking about how you're going to take people's guns away because that has nothing to do with the billionaire stranglehold on the political system. And like that's why Bernie had that view. And I think it explains why usually moderate politicians do better in elections. Um, a big exception to that rule is Bernie Sanders, whose electoral track record in Vermont is excellent. He does a really good job of getting um, all kinds of third-party presidential voters, like left ones, like Jill Stein ones, but also Ross Perot people, um, also um, Gary Johnson people. And, and I think that's clearly because not only do some of his economic ideas resonate, but it's his 
willingness to let go of other things and to indicate that he doesn't think that they are important um, helps broaden his coalition beyond what most conventional Democrats get, uh, even in New England. And he has retreated from that to be a kind of um, candidate of progressive activists, right? Like writ large, like whatever it is you want, like he's there for you. Um, and Warren, you know, has, I think, had a little bit of a less clear political identity uh, over the course of her her career. But like she has become similarly like down the line, like no enemies to the left kind of politician. I mean, in both cases, it's because like both of them think that the other one will drop out at some point, then they will combine their two bases of support. And at that point, they can beat Joe Biden and win the nomination. And they're going to worry about how to actually win-win later, um, which, you know, it's like it's it's good for them, right? But that is a dangerous game, I think, to play politically, particularly because so much of this stuff doesn't reflect what's actually at stake, right? Like if you want to make um, policy in any dimension, like move to the left, what's really going to move the needle on that is how Democratic Senate candidates do in 2020. Um, and what's going to move the needle on that is like beating Donald Trump really, really badly, not like eking out a win on a very progressive platform that you then can't implement. Like winning on a moderate platform by like a huge landslide that helps your coattails get a senator from North Carolina in uh, will do much better. Uh, although I, I felt, I mean, this is my, like my frustration with Joe Biden occupying this space is that like, I thought Joe Biden does an okay job of defending like his personal record, but does not do a very good job of defending like his stance. Yeah, I don't, I don't at this point, think he does a good job of defending almost anything um uh, he for he'll do a good job of defending things for like 22 minutes at a time and then it just collapses a little bit let's do a, a break and then i want to say something about warren support for the weeds comes from hydro finding the time to exercise can be hard but with the hydro rower finding time for a 20 minute full body workout can be a piece of cake Hydro is a state-of-the-art, low-impact home rowing machine that's actually designed by rowers. Hydro caters to all fitness levels, and their classes are taught by Olympians and world-class athletes alike. Eric Maxwell, from the business side of things here at Vox, got to try it out. Here's what he thought. The Hydro definitely felt like a nice workout. It felt challenging, intuitive, it kind of felt natural without being too strenuous. It was just nice to have a menu of options to find something super customized and just make it feel fun. This spring, you can join the growing rowing community at Hydro. You can head over to hydro.com and use code WEEDS to save up to $400 off your Hydro. That's H-Y-D-R-O-W.com code WEEDS to save up to $400. Hydro.com code WEEDS. So Warren had this killer moment in the debate against John Delaney, of all people, where she said, uh, and I'm paraphrasing, but I don't understand why you run for president to tell people what you can't do and what you can't fight for. And like everybody's like, oh, shit. <laughs> um, I, I think it was Jamel Bowie at The New York Times who used the old Jim Ross line, like, as God is my witness, he, she stabbed that man in half. And that is like a great debate line and a really bad theory. So, I mean, go back. I, I think a lot of Democrats have taken this idea from Donald Trump. Like they think like Donald Trump proved that you don't have to like compromise on anything. 
But actually, he didn't. You've made this point before, Matt. Donald Trump spent a lot of time telling the Republican Party what it couldn't do and couldn't fight for. Mm-hmm. It spent a lot of time saying he spent a lot of time saying its previous standard bearers were bad, that the Iraq war was bad, that cutting Medicare was bad, that cutting Social Security was bad, that giving all of your money to corporations was bad, that people like him should be taxed. Now, he did not govern that way. And by the way, that's a really big advantage for Democrats in this coming election. But he spent a lot of time saying there were things conservative activists wanted and they were wrong. And then there were other things that they wanted and they were right. But like he went to war with part of the party in order to like expand the emphasis on another part of the party. And then like go back to the person who won the election before him, Barack Obama. Barack Obama was extremely good at drawing boundaries. He mm-hmm. did it all of the time. He was constantly at war with what he would call the professional left, or I think it was what his people called the professional left. Now, like people on the professional left didn't like that. And, and like fair enough for them, like that makes a lot of sense not to like that. But there were a lot of places he didn't go. And and he he had a very clear view of of the entire electorate that you actually had to reach out beyond where you already were, that you had to comfort people's concerns about you. And that you had to make sure they knew that you weren't going to go further than than they could handle. Um, and so he ran this kind of campaign where he was constantly explaining like why the conservative point on things made some sense before he explained why he was going to try to do the progressive thing more or less uh, instead. But he did spend a lot of time telling people like that he was not fully on board with, with, with what his own activists wanted to do. And like you can just like keep going back like this. George W. Bush ran initially as a compassionate conservative, saying you can't balance a budget on the backs of the poor. Bill Clinton, of course ran as a kind of DLC Democrat. This idea that like the way you win elections is you just like give in to anything your side wants. Maybe it will work. Donald Trump is quite weak. And I do think we're in an era that rewards base mobilization in such a in a way that we haven't been before. But also the Democratic base is not this liberal. And so there is an implicit theory here that that, that is not just like a good debate line, but this clearly reflected in what Warren is doing. And I am legitimately not sure it's true. And like when you say this, people will accuse you of being or me, I guess, in this case, of being a crypto conservative. But the point here is not that I would not like to see a policy agenda to the left of what currently appears possible in American politics. The point is that American politics doesn't always make you happy. I would like to hear more people say, I would like this to happen, but it can't right now because it's bad politics. So it's a process to get there that like. There are things that I want that would be satisfying for me or I believe would be good. But because it's really important to get like a monster out of the White House, I'm like put that down for right now. And the fact that nobody seems willing, not nobody, but the I think the leading progressive candidates seem to have developed a, a view, which has not been the view at other times in their own political careers, that that is like bad politics is just it's genuinely it's bizarre to me and it's dangerous, I think. Like maybe they're right and like all previous political wisdom is wrong, but it's a hell of a bet to take in a very high stakes moment in American life. Yeah, I mean, the only thing I want to say about that, because I agree, but is that like I feel like people who spend our time marinating in the discourse can tend to overlook the extent to which like right now Biden has a pretty healthy lead over his rivals and that that lead is not driven by like overwhelming charisma or like (laughs) rock star in-person appearances. It's like actually that the predominant number of Democratic Party voters like agree with that more cautious, more tempered philosophy. I just feel like the like 
the base, like those of us who share that concern, um, the country as a whole is being a little bit ill served by having like that particular human being occupy that conceptual role rather than by not enough people finding the the argument convincing. But I mean, I should say, right, like the the obvious thing is that if you think about politics um, as a as a battlefield of emotions and self-expression rather than instrumental uh, rationality, the fact that Trump lost the popular vote and in fact lost it quite badly um, and the fact that that Democrats won the popular vote in, in 2018 midterms by like huge margins weighs really heavily on people. It's one thing to say your ideas went to the polls and they were defeated and they are unpopular and you need to change gears and like, you know, compromise with the electorate. It's another thing to say like, well, you're more popular than the other guy, but you lost anyway because of a kind of unfair geographic skew. So now you need to adjust to that, right? Like people really want to expand express the idea that the system is unfair, um, which, like, I think is true. But, like, you have heard, like, a crazy volume of commentary from left of center people over the past two years about the unfairness of the electoral system. But it's, like, it's this very impotent rage, you know, and it's making it uh, challenging to say, look, to do this stuff, like, that, like, Pete Buttigieg is right, right? If we want to make change on substance, you're going to have to make change on process. But to make those changes on process, you need a governing majority first, right? And so there's this, like, whole causal change in which you need to moderate your views to cater to the electorate in Iowa, to gain a governing majority in the Senate, to create new states, to change the filibuster, and then you can go forward and do things. And like that makes perfect sense. Like you could write a great essay about it. I could do a great take. We can have a great podcast. But that's like a really um, – it's like a totally bloodless message. You know, it's like it's not what people want to rally themselves for. Like they want to hear that like there's a there's like a fair way to stand up for what's right and win. But I I, I want to stand up for the blood in that message. All um, right. This Get the blood. To a piece I'm I'm trying to write, but it's coming a little slowly. I think the Democratic Party should adopt in a more front loaded way than it has democracy as a key ideal. I think standing up for democracy and the idea that you should have a democracy in this country is a message that has like vivid emotion, emotionality to it. And I think that you could run that message at a lot of different levels of the system. I actually feel in many ways that Bernie Sanders would be a good would be a good messenger for this, although it's not one that would one that he has wanted. But like we do not have a democracy because of these electoral dimensions, but also because of these corporate and billionaire stranglehold uh, dimensions and also because of what is happening in the economy like in, in, in a more narrow way when you look at sort of workplace issues uh, and, 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 and the way people do not have the freedom to make choices because of, of, of their economic situation. And a lot of this can be pulled together under the rubric of democracy and freedom. You've seen people make small uh, feints at this. So – Elizabeth Warren has talked about sort of freedom and 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 to some degree democracy, worker democracy through some of her uh, cap- capitalism accountability work. Um, you've certainly seen Bernie Sanders make this argument about money in the political system. You've seen Pete Buttigieg make this argument about freedom. Um, but nobody, I think, has put it together in a way that makes a lot of sense and has kind of made the argument that like 
the fight is for democracy and like the Democratic Party should be the party of democracy. And a democracy agenda has these different parts to it. But they actually wrap in quite quite a bit of it. So it feels to me like that is there for somebody to make. And you don't just have to have it be about giving D.C. statehood. It's actually about a lot more. There's a lot of threads of this you could pull together. You could look at Elizabeth Anderson's work on workplace democracy. There's huge amounts of work in, in the political theory literature about positive freedoms. There's so much there that somebody could knit together, and, and, and they're just not. Um, I would say that one of the people to be a little more, to, to take your point about Joe Biden occupying this space and just not being quite the right guy for it, is that it's a shame to me that Cory Booker settled on the message he did. Because I think Cory Booker is proving in all of these debates to be an extremely talented politician. Um, he always has been a talented politician. He turns some people off with a kind of graspingness that I don't. I think a lot of politicians have, and somehow people see it in him more clearly, and and it, it turns them off. But also, he wins elections easily. He um, is really able to turn on the heat when he needs to. He often, I think, at his best, comes off as really likable and sincere, uh, which I think he he actually quite is. But he settled on a message. I know he believes very deeply about a, a, a radical form of love um, and, and, and the need to knit the soul of America together. It's a much more like well-theorized version of what Joe Biden is saying that is drawing on roots in the civil rights movement and in like Gandhian nonviolence. And like Booker thinks about this stuff and he studies it. And like I know it is deeply felt to him and it is not connecting. And then he says it and then he like goes on the attack on Joe Biden or says he sometimes wants to punch Donald Trump. Yes. And the whole thing doesn't make any sense. He, it, 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 I think if Booker had developed a message, which at some point, if you go back to the second podcast I did with him at one of our conferences, he was beginning to talk about there of like of different of freedoms and had developed a, a message that connected to a policy agenda like the universal basic wealth stuff and other things that he's been thinking about and then was making the sort of arguments he's making on stage, there'd be a real opportunity for him to step into this field and step into the space. And he is of the people we're talking about, somebody who could be a moderate candidate who also is attacking Joe Biden, to your point earlier, Matt, because he's very deep disagreements with Joe Biden on criminal justice issues and uh -huh. sort of longstanding racial equity issues. So he would have he'd be a really interesting candidate to do something like this. And I think there's time for him to retool pretty substantially. And not I'm not offering them any advice, but I would just say as somebody watching this that there, there's a lot there that Cory Booker could pull together, and I think they've just pulled it together in a way that doesn't work. And like, it is like time to time to do a rethink. Yeah. Well, so I think I, I want to go through a couple of candidates who, who we haven't <laughs> mentioned, but like one thing that I see running through uh, so much of of what's going on with Democrats is like a, something that that I called an article I wrote, like the the Great Awakening, right? Which is this huge change in like white white liberals' ideas about race. And you see really like you, you saw it when in when Jay Inslee was like talking about how self-reflective he needs to be about like his status as a white man in politics. You saw it in uh Kristen Gillibrand like trying to say how she explains the concept of white privilege to suburban white mothers she talks to. Um you see it in uh Julian Castro who has like moved to some um you know, pretty uh, aggressive positions on reparations and immigration that, as Joe Biden noted, like these were not stances he had when he was HUD secretary or when he was mayor of San Antonio. I, I think tellingly, like when he was mayor of a majority Latino city, he was not particularly identified with these um, like racial justice topics. It's now a presidential campaign 
conceit for him. And I just like, I don't think that it, that it works like at all. Um, like Barack Obama's candidacy was like the opposite of that, specifically on racial topics, um, to like a paranoid extent. And I don't think it like it it makes sense for Democrats. And I don't I mean, I understand where it comes from looking at sort of changes in public sentiment. But like as a as a theory of like what is the problem, right, that like has brought this like racial crisis to the fore? It's like Donald Trump being president, right? So if you want to solve that problem, like how do you do that? And I feel like you have to solve that problem by saying that like typical people's lives will be improved in like specific concrete ways by you running. And so many of these people out there on the on the fringes, like I, I feel like they're like in the clouds in a in a weird way. Um, Booker, like very much so um, for somebody who. You know, has like also done other stuff like walked picket lines with striking Newark airport workers to get them a raise. I think that's right. Look, there's always a tension between what are the arguments in politics that it feels really good to make and what are the arguments in politics at work. And something you're taught uh, like in an argument is that an argument that convinces you is probably not going to be an argument that convinces somebody who disagrees with you. It's really, really important when you are trying to be persuasive to remember that the reason somebody disagrees with you is probably because like they come, they start from a very different place. And that isn't to say that I, I don't want to make an argument here that the only way to win is like to win like Donald Trump, blue collar, white, non-collar. Like there's actually a lot of ways to put together a winning coalition here. Mm -hmm. But the winning coalition is going to be quite different than um, like the left side of the democratic activist world, or, or frankly, even like the left side of the wonkish world, or even the liberal side of the wonkish world. And talented politicians, one of the things they're able to do is keep in mind a lot of different kinds of people all at once and craft messages and craft approaches and craft policies that can create a coalition out of them. And I think there's a lot of dynamics going on right now. Some of them are happening inside the Democratic Party and the Republican Party. Some of them are technological about what happens when you're on Twitter a lot. And so you're you're, you're very like woven into some very intense groups, but not others. But I think that there is some difficulty that some of them are having just hearing themselves to somebody who doesn't always agree, who doesn't already agree. And I don't know, like may, maybe it's fine because, again, I think Donald Trump is a quite weak um, candidate here. Uh, there was a, a funny moment early in the debate. I think it was her opening statement where Kristen Gillibrand said, <laughs> she's like, it wasn't impossible for me to do gun control and it wasn't impossible for me to do something else. Uh, I think it was healthcare for 9-11 responders. And it, it's not impossible to beat Donald Trump. And it's like, this all seemed like a very low definition of impossible. Donald Trump has never won more votes than the other person he's run against in an election. And he's never had an approval rating above 50% for a day. Like, it is not impossible to beat Donald Trump, but it is possible to lose to him. And the way you would lose to him is um, that you don't mobilize enough of your people and you mobilize enough of his people or that you create a space where people are scared of you. And he is the president right now and the economy is not that bad. And if you and frankly, like it's actually in some ways good. If you just looked at the fundamentals, he's a favorite. The fact that he doesn't poll as a favorite speaks to how weak he is as a politician. But I, I don't know. There's like a level of risk aversion that I think that people should have here that is not about, again, 
trying to appeal to his hardcore supporters. But it is about recognizing that Democrats need to expand their coalition from what it was and that that's probably going to mean talking to people who are less like them, not more. Well, and I think acknowledging, right, that in a real talk sense, right, because here's the the flip side, because like you're right, like being Donald Trump is, is very possible because his approval rating is low, right? But if you think like, say you like didn't know Donald Trump's approval rating and you just looked at the state of the country, you would think, well, it's going to be really hard to beat Donald Trump, right? Like the unemployment rate is low. The economy continues to grow. Wage growth, you know, on the like generational time frame has not been very good. But on the like look at the past 12 months time frame, it's totally fine. Um, people say they're happy with the health insurance that they have. Most people say that their neighborhood public school is good. Uh, people say it's a good time to find work, right? Like people are expressing a lot of uh, contentment with um, specific things that are happening in their lives, right? Then you layer on top of that the fact that actually the incumbent president is very unpopular. So it's like, wow, we have this like golden opportunity to win an election and beat this guy, right? But then he has an opportunity to throw back and say to people like, look, whether you like me or not, like the fact is that like things are going okay in your life and these other people are like going to ruin it all, right? And, you know, I saw the, um, I, I don't know if you, you've seen this out on the, on the West Coast, but in, in the D.C. media market, uh, the Trump campaign has started running ads uh, on the cable networks, uh, sort of like adjacent to when these, these debates start. And they have one, and it's like showing all these guys raising their hands and saying they all want to give health care to illegal immigrants. And there's like scary pictures of illegal immigrants. And then there's stuff about how like this is going to uh, drain like the public coffers of the money we need for like your Medicare and your Medicaid, right? And, you know, that's obviously not true. Uh, but like I've seen, I've talked to like, you know, pollsters, Democratic uh, analytics people, and like Democrats' best message continues to be that Democrats will protect the existing social safety net, um, which is like not something anybody even said during the debates. And putting yourselves in a position where Trump might argue that like Democrats are actually threatening that safety net, like that's a really like risky out there kind of stance, you know, and in a situation where like it's not 2008, right? Like the objective conditions in the country are not like falling apart all around us. It's just that Trump seems like such a disaster. And I don't know, like if it was me, I would like focus in more narrowly on that. Like, like what specifically is Trump doing that is bad? And how are you going to stop it or fix it or something like that? Neither this like sweeping, like we're going to have a revolution, nor this like kind of like spiritual, like Biden Booker. Uh, I could throw Marianne Williamson in there. Like it's, I don't know, it feels very weird to me. Um, I, I, I feel like the saving grace is that it's August 2019. Fair enough. I think that's a good place to, to, to end. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, uh, Ezra, for, for, for stopping by. Thanks, as always, to our producer, uh, Jeffrey Geld. And the weeds will return on Tuesday. Tuesday.